if you want to turn to Matthew 22, we started this series last week, titled this, Great is Greater Than Good. And, and the subtitle of this series is Things That Jesus Prioritized, because here's what I truly believe is that each and every one of us, as human beings, living, breathing on this earth, each and every one of us really want to do great things. But unfortunately, we don't have unlimited time in our life. We don't have unlimited resources. We don't have unlimited things. We have a capacity within what it means to be a human. So that means that there is limitations, and we can really crowd our life with tons and tons of good things. And the threat of that is that we might miss out on the great things. How many of you guys know that sometimes just because it's a good thing doesn't mean it's the right thing? And I believe this. I believe the conviction and the saying that says that sometimes good can become the biggest enemy of great. So we're going to look at that through a spiritual lens. And we looked at this a little bit last week in terms of, okay, there's a lot of good things that we could really put our life towards in terms of how we relate to God and our spirituality. But what are the great things that Jesus prioritized? If we're going to bank on anything, if we're going to focus our energy in any which direction, what does that energy look like and where does that energy go? How do we apply this as followers of Jesus? And if we truly believe that Jesus is perfect, then we'll take his word for it. And, and so we're going to look into this and continue to discover that this week. And last week, just to give you kind of an update, uh, first and foremost, we learned that Jesus prioritized a love for him. What it means to love him. And what it means when we love a God that is trustworthy. When we choose to love a God that we can't love more than him. I love the idea that we can't outlove God. So he informs our love. We talked about the idea that when we love God with our mind, we understand, man, there's no one smarter than God. In fact, he sees the world, he understands it because it submits under him because it is his creation. He knows every single detail. So we talked about this idea that God allows us to prioritize our life through a love for him. That sometimes many of us are suspicious of church. Some of us are suspicious of an idea of God. But man, God, he is. We are, we are, we are encouraged and commanded by God to love him for a reason. Because when we do, we don't, we don't regret it. We don't regret it because of the byproduct of his love that comes with that. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. That was the top thing. But we're going to just read a couple scriptures later and see really this other thing that, that Jesus prioritizes as something being great. So Matthew 22, be up on the screens. If you turn there, we're going to look at verses 37 through 40. It says this. It says, Jesus replied, someone asking him, what's, what's, what should I do? How should I prioritize my life? What is great? And he replies, and what we talked about last week, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The greatest. There it is. We talked about that last week. And this is what we're going to look at this, mor this morning, verse 39. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Can we pray this morning? Lord, Lord, we're just so thankful for you. And Lord, we're thankful for your simplicity. That sometimes we feel like overwhelmed by even maybe sometimes opening up a Bible or seeing a Bible, seeing the amount of pages, getting overwhelmed with ideas and who you are and how we relate to you, God. But Lord, I'm just so thankful this morning that, that Lord, you prioritize greatness very simply. So this morning, Lord, would you speak to us? Would the priorities of our life maybe shift 
if they've been prioritized a little incorrectly in terms of what you want to do and accomplish through our lives. Lord, we're thankful that all the law and the prophets are summed up by these two commands. And Lord, as we're commissioned today to love people, Lord, would you speak to our hearts and would we be effective in great things? Lord, would we not be the ones who try to define what great is, but Lord, would you help inform those things today? Lord, we love you, we praise you this morning, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, 1 John 4.19, it won't be up on the screen, but I love what 1 John 4.19, it says, we love because he first loved us. So really, if we want to be people that love our neighbors as ourselves, we realize that first and foremost, our love for ourselves is informed by the way in which God loves us. But I want to pick apart a couple worldviews this morning. That I really believe there's two pretty broad spiritual categories. We can kind of generalize uh, a worldview that can really encapsulate many things in the way that people see the world today. And it's these two ideas, two typical worldviews concerning spirituality called twoism and oneism. And let me break that down. Twoism, what is that? Put down a definition in my notes. I'm just going to read it. It's, it. it's the idea that all is two. What does that mean? We worship and serve the eternal, personal creator of all things. God alone is divine and is distinct from his creation. And from a Christian perspective, yet through his son, Jesus, he is in loving communion with it. So this idea that creation and creator is separate, not the same, separate entities. There is the creator and there is his creation and then there is this type of relationship. And we talked about this last week a little bit. What's unique about Jesus as being a form of this spiritual understanding of twoism, that there's creator and creation, is the way that Jesus relates and merges those things together. That heaven or spirituality isn't a distant thing, but Jesus came to be the bridge to give access to heaven, to give power to humans, to inform humans about who they are. And not only that, to relate to humans on a level that we sometimes feel like we only understand. Jesus coming in the form of a baby, not needing to because he's God, but choosing to submit to that process so that we have the understanding and the benefit of knowing that God relates to us on a level that we thought we could only understand. No, he chose to submit himself to a process. And when we feel like we're going some, through something that no one else understands, we can always bank on the fact that we know God already has through what he did with his life. So this spiritual understanding of twoism. But then we have this other idea which, in which we would call oneism. And oneism is this, all is one. We worship and serve creation as divine. All distinctions must be eliminated, and through enlightenment, we discover that we also are divine. So it's a focus on the self. It's a focus on self-discovery that if I look more inwardly, I will be able to find and unlock the truths and the key to life. And what's very interesting in our culture today is these ideas have kind of gotten confused and merged. And I want to place a lens over our eyes this morning to inform us of, just, just to start us off, what does it mean to love ourselves? And that loving ourselves sometimes gives us a lot of good ideas, but is this really informed by great? So I found an article that I think really kind of helps us uh, understand this perspective that's, that's very prevalent in our culture today and how that relates to maybe maybe a worldview, um, a biblical worldview. So this article was titled, 10 Really Easy Ways You Can Love Yourself More Today. Um, and it was an article I got from galadarling.com, in fact. 
So anyway, here we go. I'm going to read it. Love yourself more, we're told. But what does that mean? What exactly does that look like? Does it mean spending the day in bed or going out and getting some exercise? Does it mean eating a bowl of chocolate ice cream or eating a salad instead? Well, it can be all those things. The root of radical self-love is listening to your intuition and learning to hear what your body is telling you it needs. Sometimes, though, that can be tricky. So I've compiled ten really easy things that you can do right now. The author encourages, pick a couple of them to do today and do another two or three over the coming week. I, th I think, actually, I know that you will be staggered by how effective they are. Let's go through this really quickly. These are the encouragements of finding self-love, right? Discovering that from within. Number one, she says, spend some time alone this coming week. I implore you to do this. Even if you have to cancel a social outing in order to make it happen, learning to get comfortable with who we are is one of the most crucial parts of radical self-love. So interesting about this is spending time alone, solitude. You know where my brain immediately goes? Is this idea and this biblical principle of solitude. The encouragement of the scriptures that says, be still and know that I am God. Wow. This idea of solitude. Once again, in a self-discovery of ourselves, being enlightened, when we actually look at it through the worldview and the lens of the biblical narrative. Number two, she encourages us, pay yourself an amazing compliment and make it meaningful. When you come up with your compliment, take a deep breath. Say it out loud while you look at yourself in the mirror. Write it down in your radical self-love Bible, too. You know what I love about this? Is that God has already informed us of who we are. You know that you're his beloved? That's what he, he, he gives you that title. The apple of his eye. He loves you so much. But sometimes we want to do this. We want to muster up our own compliments about ourselves. But I, I would push back on this and help us maybe take a step back and understand that we've already been deemed. We've already been given a title. We've already been given dignity. And no, I'm not talking about whether you carry the Christian title, whether you go to church or not to church. I'm going back farther in the biblical narrative. Let's go back. I'm not talking about the Gentiles and who God loves so much that we would go reach in the early book of the Acts in the church or the people of God, Israel. No, I'm talking, let's go back to creation. Let's go back and understand that each and every one of us was given dignity and respect and we were created in, in this idea that we were made in the image of God, Christian or not, spiritual or unspiritual. We carry an image that is reflective and representative of God. And because of that, God loves us, is chasing after us, and informs us of who we are. Let's keep moving. Number three, I like this one, read some poetry. Imagine how much more divine life would be if you read poetry every day. Hint, there's no reason why you can't. You know what I love about the Bible? It's a library of different genres. You got beautiful narratives. You got what we would call the wisdom literature. You got the prophetic books. You got the poetic writings, right? I love it because we could come with this idea of self-discovery that maybe, man, we need to read some poetry What's beautiful about God's word is, you know, he's, he's smartest. He's thought about this. He's given us a written word that informs once again, brings us to this place of being in connection and relationship with him, informing of who we are. Number four, shift your focus. What is more important, being beautiful on the outside 
But the kind of person you're becoming on the inside, as fun as it is to play with cosmetics, it's a fact that even the most gorgeous people age and looks fade. Reminds me of Proverbs 31, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. The same wisdom that we find in God's ancient writing. Number five, write a love letter to yourself on your mirror. Write yourself the love letter you always wanted to receive. I love that that's what the Bible is. It's the love letter that each and every one of us, deep down into our soul, wants to receive. And he's written it with us in mind. He's written that story for us to unpack and relate to it on the, from the depths of our souls of understanding there's a God who has constantly pursued his creation. It's the most beautiful love letter you could ever read from front to back. Not to mention the best-selling book of all time. Number six, evaluate what you're feeding yourself. Are there a few people on Facebook who simply update so they have an outlet for whining and complaining? Come on, somebody. What about that dude on Twitter who hates his job and wants everyone to know about it? Do you read the blogs by women who talk incessant crap about other people? It's time to cut these people out of your life. You won't miss them, I promise. I love this one because I love the Bible informs us of the same thing. I would just summarize it by saying guard your gates. Guard the places where you're ingesting other things. Figure out what you're feeding your soul. God cares about the ingestion of what we take in in terms of what we feed our souls. Let's keep going. Number seven, move your body. Get out of the house today and stretch your limbs. Go to a yoga or a Pilates class. Or if you're low on, dis on disposable cash, take your yoga mat to a local park and have a big, lovely stretch underneath the trees. Call a couple of friends and invite them to join you. Once again, we're created in God's image. And I love when the Bible even warns against the sins of gluttony or people that bank on excess for their life, confronting the drunkards. There's this idea that God is confronting with our physical bodies, understanding there's limits Understanding that this is something, as he's created us in his image, that we steward and we take care of, right? Number eight, stand up for what you believe in. So next time someone wants to rag on you for this or that, take a deep breath and realize it don't mean a thing. Just tell them to hit the road, Jack. I love when the Bible says, always be ready to give a hope or give a reason for the hope that you have. Encourages us on a moment-to-moment -moment basis to bring hope. And here's where it's contrary to this idea is that we don't just tell people to hit the road. We're actually trying to pull people into the hope that Jesus gives. We're not saying you're, we're exclusive and we want you out of our life. We're actually commissioned to invite people into our life because of what he's done, because of the hope that he gives and informs. Number nine, go to bed early. We need our sleep in order to function. If you've been going to bed late and waking up early, it's time to treat yourself. How many of you guys know that God created the Sabbath? With the understanding that we need to be people that rest. That sleep and doing nothing, turning off the cell phone for 24 hours, even as a pastor, and realizing it's okay. The world's going to be okay. And resting and being obedient to God and the rest that we can find by just being. Not being something, but by just being. Number 10. Do something good for your, somebody else. The more I learn about radical self-love, the more I realize that radical self-love, which is only focused on the self, is not the whole picture. 
No, not at all. Radical self-love is about getting yourself to a loving, beautiful baseline and then taking what you've learned and transforming it to the external world. Here it is. Loving your neighbor as yourself. These are all good things. Sometimes we were like, we want to alienate any sort of worldview that, that is like, oh, well, they're just against it. No, no, no. These are good things. These are good principles. But it becomes an issue when we don't recognize the source. And the source is great. And the source is of his great love. It begins to inform everything. And sometimes we think, we're just going to try to find it from within, within, within. And we realize more and more as we search within ourselves, we realize it points to a God. It points to a creator. It points to one who informs every area of our life. But how do we love ourselves? How do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, first we've got to begin by understanding how much God loves us. And out of that place, we will be informed how to truly love our neighbors as ourselves. So this morning, under this assumption, we're going to look at five quick things. And we're going to define neighbor as ourselves. We're going to define that. And then we're going to study to make sure that holds up in terms of the definition. So here's the biblical definition I will propose. And then we're going to, you're going to proof me on it through five ways that we're going to look at this morning. Here's, here's my, my definition for loving our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? Anyone and everyone you have a chance to meet, regardless of their lifestyle and choices. You know, our family goal at, uh, at PCC is to adopt anyone and everyone into the genuine and active love of Jesus. We really like those words, anyone and everyone. Because once again, I, I, can we give it up for Chandra who led us in communion today? She did such an incredible job. Yeah, wow. She did such an incredible job of, of pointing that out. That everyone's welcome and invited to come to God's table. Doesn't mean everyone will. But man, his arms are open wide. His posture never changes, right? And I love this because this is the definition of the neighbor, the focus of God's love, the one we've been commissioned into giving and prioritizing because God's saying it's great. Anyone and everyone you have a chance to meet regardless of their lifestyle and choices. So let's break that down. If you're taking notes this morning, here's number one. I believe that here's number one, who we need to love. We need to, number one, love people in front of you. We need to lo start loving people that are, that are in front of us. 1 John 4, 20, 21 says this, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever who does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is a great filter on our true love for God. Are we loving the people that are right in front of us? I think Christians can so, so many times get caught up in reaching the world, doing great things for God, that they forget about the people that are right in front of them. We see this many times where, 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 where we get caught up in the so-called great things, but there it is. We miss maybe one of the greatest things. I remember when I was in high school, I started getting really involved in church to a point where it overrode uh, some time I could have spent with my family. Oh, I, I vividly remember this. I remember being like, my mom would be like, hey, we're getting a family get together on, you know, Sunday night. That's when you, our youth was or whatever. And it's like, well, no, no, I got, I got to go to church. It's like, I got, I got great things to do for God, right? 
It's like, hey, we're having this family get together in the middle of the week. It's like, no, 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 I got, you know, I got the stuff I got to do at the church. I, literally, I remember this. This was habitual. And I convinced myself this idea that the things that I was doing for God was greater than the relationships he had placed right in front of my face. Here's where I made the mistake. I said the mission of God is more important than these people. And I made a mistake because I split two ideas that are not supposed to be split. Because the mission of God is people. When we begin to convince ourselves that we're going to do great things for God, and we don't even love the people that are right in front of us. Maybe we're the type of person that's like, I want to do great things for God and be obedient. Meanwhile, we're slacking in being husbands, or wives, or brothers, sisters. We have missed the complete point. I believe God has called us to be people that love first those who are right in front of us. Because no one's going to believe in a love when those things are falling apart. We will not be effective ministers of people if we forget the people God has placed right in front of us. So number one this morning, God has called us to be people that love those who find themselves right in front of us, wherever we're at. Wherever they're at, wherever you're at right now, there's an opportunity for love. There's an opportunity for God's grace. Amen? Number two this morning, we're going to bust through these. Number two is this. Love people with sacrifice. Love people with sacrifice. Uh, for all my J-Lo fans in the house, your love don't cost a thing. Come on. 2001. It was like three of us maybe that remember that song. It was a jam. It was a hit. It bumped. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but here's the deal. Love don't cost a thing. That, that's not true. Love costs a lot. It takes sacrifice. Right? Think about it. You want to have a good friendship? Get the sacrifice. I remember I think about some of my friends in high school. I've shared this, I think, before. It just got to a point where it was like, who are my friends? Because it just seemed like anytime I wanted to hang out with my friends, they were like, no, we want to just drink and get high. And I just realized really quickly, like, you're not willing to even sacrifice, like, weed and alcohol to even have a friendship. You know what I'm saying? I don't think I'm going to define that as friendship for me. Because there's no sacrifice involved. You want to have a healthy marriage? You know what you got to do? Sacrifice, come on. Mutual submission, Ephesians. And for some of us in the room that have maybe carried the lie that it's basically what the husband says, miss the second part in Ephesians that talks about the things that are required out of the husband to serve his wife. It's mutual. And it's sacrificial. If you want to have a family, thinking about having a child, and you want that child to feel loved, Want that child to grow up maybe in a healthy environment. Want to care for that child and provide for that child. You know what you got to do? You got to lay down your own life. You have to sacrifice for that child. It's just the reality of relationships, right? John 15, 13 says this. Greater love has no one than this. To lay down one's life for one's friends. And it's amazing because you're like, well, who are the friends? Let's get caught up on the friends language here. Well, you know what Jesus did? He did this for everybody. So that means Jesus is pursuing a friendship with each and every one of us. Doesn't mean we're going to be friends, but he's pursuing one with us because he's laid down his life for anyone and everyone. 1 John 3.16 says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, 
and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Sacrifice is selfless. So this morning, I just want to present this question to you, church. How are we serving others? How are we sacrificing for other people? Is our quote-unquote love actually sacrificial? Does it actually cost us something? Let's keep going. Number three, love people to show Jesus. John 13, 34 through 35. A new command I give you, Jesus says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You want to prove to people that you know Jesus? Love other people well. Do this thing that Jesus has prioritized as great and do it really, really well. This is the mark. This is what we need to do. Think about this. People prove that they know things by doing them well. Give you a few examples. What did Michael Jordan know? How to play basketball. Greatest of all time. I know you got, maybe you got some LeBron lovers or whatever, you know, but he's still the greatest. What did Michael Jackson know? How to sing and dance. That's why he's considered the king of pop. Come on. What did Steve Jobs know? How to innovate technology. What did Walt Disney know? How to be creative. What did Albert Einstein know? How to be intelligent. What does Kevin Durant know? How to have no self-respect. Come on, somebody. We're bitter. We're still a little bitter. But we're excited about this next season. Okay. So if people ask, what does blank know? Insert your name. Would they say, how to love people well? How to, what does this person know? What's the reputation of your life? Is it one where people sense and understand, can feel genuine love? If I'm being honest, in the legacy of my life, I don't want to be known as a person that preached well, necessarily, or led a church well, or was a youth pastor well, or led worship well, or built a team well, or made relationships well. I'd rather be a person that has a legacy where people say he loved so well. Because when you love so well, you reflect what God has prioritized so well. And I believe when you do that, you know what, it begins to inform every area. It makes you the better pastor. It makes you the better person. It makes you the better boss. It makes you the better CEO. It makes you the better employee. It, it begins to inform everything, which is why he has prioritized it as something great, because it informs every other area. When we do this, Jesus is authentically reflected. Are we doing that well? The people are longing for it. I love when we have con conversation about just being humans, and it gets really authentic. It, like, de defies social class and all these divisions that we want to create. You know, like this book, Everyone Poops? Come on, somebody. It reminds us that, yeah, oh, yeah, e each and every one of us, we do that. And it's not glamorous. It kind of levels the playing field, right? I like those kind of authentic conversations, right? Because it, it becomes not about the money you make, not about your personal glory. It's like, hey, we're all human beings. We're trying to figure this out. We all have longings for the same things deep down within our soul, right? 
Everyone's been embarrassed. All of us remember when our emotions were heightened and we had an embarrassing moment. Which leads into the idea that everyone's made mistakes. Everyone's screwed up. Everyone has things to look back on and like, dang, I didn't make, I, that wasn't perfect. And the idea, universally, if we're going to stay in that authentic territory, everyone wants to and needs to be loved. People are longing for this, which is why Jesus has placed it as a priority. It works. Love works. It works as a leading force in our lives, which is why it receives the title great when Jesus talks about it. Let's keep moving on. Number four, love people you have hated. I like this one. Everyone, ever done something mean to somebody else? I remember there was like a time in like elementary or whatever. Like, you know, you got like a top five. You're like, oh gosh. You look back in your life, you're like, God, why did I do that? You're like, was I the bully? You know, you have those questions with yourself. You ever thought that? I remember there was this time in elementary school was like, somehow it came across and you're like, I remember I was like, I, I basically made it known that I thought that this girl, maybe it's like fifth grade, fourth grade, was unattractive. And, it, and, it, and it, it came off in a way where she was so upset and so distraught that she told her older brother. And I remember walking home from school, elementary school one day, and there's like this high schooler, you know, I'm just an elementary kid, who's like, what'd you say about my sister? You know what I mean? And all this guilt and this shame just kind of like floods over you. And I look back at that in the moment, just being like, why is this happening to me? And it's like, no, like, I get it. Because, like, I've done something to hurt somebody else. But I share that example because some of us in the room, like, we know that. And maybe some of those events in our lives are pretty fresh. But, but there's hope. There's hope when we've maybe had ill will towards someone else. There's hope when we, like, look back in our life, we're like, that isn't, like, the film reel of, like, champions. And this is what the Bible says. It says this. 1 Peter 4, 8, Proverbs 10, 12. I think these, these verses are really speak into this for our lives this morning. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Love becomes the answer. Love becomes the posture that we take in situations where it's like, man, I, I burned somebody else. Man, maybe I hated somebody else for a season. God's saying, let that love begin to inform those areas of your life. Begin to lead. Because conflict gets stirred up when hatred's involved. But man, what does love begin to do? It begins to reconcile people back together. But it takes us to be the vehicles. It takes us to be the people that lead with that type of posture. If you've wronged somebody... Love them. Today, be a person who serves them. If you're still in contact with that person, sacrifice for them. See what happens. Because love covers it. Love takes care of it. Love will cover the guilt and the shame that maybe you still carry and you're like, okay, I get it, Jesus. Like, you've, you've covered those things. Man, but let's be active about it. And see the grace that begins to come into our life and inform our life when we begin to reconcile relationships. And then lastly, this morning, number five, love people who hate you. Love people who hate you. Matthew chapter five, 
the greatest sermon of all time. It's Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. It says this, it says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yeah, we hear that. I hear it. I go on Facebook, you know how many enemies I see? You know how many enemies I see the church has created? Easy. Easy breezy. I hear that all the time. That's easy. Because guess what? My, who I am, born under the curse of sin as an imperfect human being, I'm going to naturally want to go that direction. That's, that's easy. That's, 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 I'm born into that. That comes natural. But as Jesus as a transformative God, verse 44, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? People during that day that people hated because of the injustice of the way that money was being treated and taken advantage of. Verse 47, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The aim is perfection. We know Jesus being the perfect one. So aim. Aim towards that. I'm not saying today just suddenly just decide you're going to be perfect. No. Suddenly decide you want to aim for that. The trajectory of your life, and a way when you aim for that is knowing that you don't just love people that you like. You actually like people that actually oppress you. The ones that maybe call you an enemy. You choose to love those ones. It makes me think about this idea of bare minimum versus the bar. And everything in between. And I'm going to give us a few examples. But I want to say this before I share some of this. The metaphors I'm going to sh share kind of with us as an example is that God advocates for human flourishing. He wants us to be in connection and flourish in the way that he has created us to be. Now, unfortunately, because of what sin did, that's nearly impossible. But through what God has done, he is allowing us to be people that flourish according to his ideals. But his ideals seem type of, kind of crazy sometimes. And his ideals sometimes come across as offensive towards us. But this is where the trust factor comes in and saying, okay, God, I'm going to trust that your ways are higher than my ways. These are my preferences, but I'm going to lay every preference down at your feet. It's like thinking of the ideal of wanting to be fit. I'm not offended by physical fitness, knowing that there is an ideal of having a six-pack, right? It's the same thing, right? We kind of know what we need to do. We kind of know the trajectory of life that God's going to encourage. But sometimes we don't always do it. And rather than get offended about the journey, sometimes we just need to understand that there are certain things that God's trying to orient. So here's my hope is that these examples speak to them, speak to you in the ways that they need to speak to people. Rather than getting overwhelmed with the ideals, let, let this speak to you. So let me give you a few examples. Bare minimum versus the bar. Here's an example. I'm going to keep my dating standards high, but open that up more as I get older since most people are taken. Personal timing for you may be the bar versus waiting for the right person God's going to bring you. 
I'm going to drink and go to parties, but not get drunk. Drunkenness is the bar versus maybe not participating in foolishness that you know maybe pulls you in. I'm going to have fun with my boyfriend or girlfriend, but not have actual sex. Not having sex is the bar versus maybe honoring your boyfriend or girlfriend's emotions or sexuality before a commitment. I'm going to smoke weed for fun, but not smoke crack. Weed is the bar versus this idea of stewarding your physical body. Not allowing external things to drive and cause you to not be sober-minded towards the realities of the world. I'm going to do my classwork, but the bare minimum not to fail. Passing is the bar versus striving to do and be your best. I'm going to say whatever I want, but I'm not going to use profanity. Cussing becomes the bar versus using your tongue to speak life and encourage people. I'm going to honor my parents, but only when they do what I want. Honoring when you get your way is the bar versus honoring your parents. I'm going to attend church, but never let a soul know that my life has been transformed by Jesus. Church attendance is the bar versus living out God's mission for your life. And here it is. I'm going to love some people, but not love others. Loving some is the bar versus having a universal love like Jesus for all people. Love your neighbor. What does that mean? As we've looked at it this morning, I believe there's a definition. Anyone and everyone you have a chance to meet in this life, regardless of their lifestyle and choices. God has prioritized this as great because people are done with hypocrisy. People are not coming in droves to the church unless we prioritize this and let it inform every area in the same way that Jesus did as perfect love was displayed and he died a brutal death as his life was taken for us. You know what that perfect love does, the Bible says? It casts out all fear. It's time we stop being fear-filled people and leading with that. It's time to stop convincing the world that everything and everyone should be filled with narratives of fear of why you should come to know Jesus. Jesus is offering a love and an abundant life that is not only good, but it is prioritized to a place where he says, this is great. And when you love me, and you love people, it is not only great, it is the greatest. So let's do it. And let's
let's allow that to inform every other good area of our life. Amen?